This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for July 20th, 2022. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Today, we're also joined by Ashish Jha. Ashish is an internist and a health policy researcher who was at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and was director of the Harvard Global Health Institute. In 2020, he was named Dean of the Brown School of Public Health. During the COVID epidemic, he's been a leading source of information for the public and for professionals. And this role was greatly expanded when he was named the White House COVID-19 Response Coordinator, popularly known as the COVID czar in April. There, he's been integral to efforts to combat the outbreak and serves as a resource for both policymakers and citizens. Thank you, Ashish, for joining us today. But before we start, I want to talk about two studies that we published today that explore what variants mean in the face of immune responses or therapies. Unlike last summer, we continue to have reasonably high rates of transmission of COVID-19 here in the United States and in many countries. In fact, this has generally been true since the emergence of the first Omicron variants. And now the continuing spread of disease is being fueled by new Omicron-related variant viruses. As we've discussed in previous podcasts, these variants are successful because they've been able to infect people despite prior immunity induced either by vaccination or by infection. Although recent viral variants are all related to Omicron and are still often referred to as Omicron, they're sufficiently different from one another that they can each individually cause outbreaks on a background of pre-existing immunity. So the two studies, the first is a look at the efficacy of various therapies. What did the investigators find? Steve, very briefly, this group has been looking at interventions that block viral infections using in vitro assays as each new variant arises. In this study, they tested various available monoclonal antibodies and drugs for their ability to inhibit the replication of various variants, including some of the latest BA2.12.1, BA4, and BA5, and compared these responses to those reference strains that were isolated early in the epidemic. To summarize, all three antivirals, remdesivir, molnupiravir, and nirmatrelvir, retained their ability to inhibit replication. However, as seen with some of the earlier variants, several monoclonal antibodies had substantially reduced ability to neutralize infection. Most antibodies had a greater than tenfold reduction in their ability to neutralize as compared to the original viral isolate, though bemtilavimab still retains full neutralizing activity. It's important to remember that these are in vitro observations, and we don't know how well they're going to extrapolate to clinical results. But the data look quite mixed, good for small molecules and not so good for most monoclonals. So Eric, I think that these data highlight a bit of the selective pressure that's going on. And as there is viral replication, vaccine-elicited immunity, anti-spike antibodies being used, it allows the virus to escape very targeted therapies. And I think this is a challenge with our monoclonals as we continually develop them to target the currently circulating variants. There's a different selective pressure on small molecules, as you put it, Eric, because the anti-spike antibodies and the evolution to that immune response doesn't have the same pressure on those viral metabolic pathways. So I think we're seeing a little bit of the biology play out as this virus adapts to the humoral immune response and figures out how to escape it to continue to transmit and may reflect different pressures on our countermeasure strategies that we've been developing. Ashish, how did these kind of data play into your strategy nationally to deal with these therapeutic agents? 
So Eric and Steve and Lindsay, thanks for inviting me on. You know, data like this is enormously helpful. And let me kind of lay out how we think about it. You know, sitting here at the White House and in the federal government, we're trying to think about how do we build out a medicine cabinet for doctors and for other healthcare providers to use for people who are infected, right? And what we want is we want a broad range of tools. We want a variety of things in the medicine cabinet because not everybody's going to be eligible for every treatment. And we want treatments that are as efficacious and as safe as possible. And so far, we've had these two major buckets of things. We've had monoclonals. And what we have seen is as the virus has evolved, we've seen monoclonals come on and off in terms of their efficacy. And with BA5 now being the dominant variant, uh, subvariant of Omicron, we still have one monoclonal as a therapeutic, Abtelivumab, that still appears to be effective. That's what this study shows. And thank goodness we have some, but it reminds us of how precarious that tool is. And I think Lindsay actually did a very nice job of explaining the biology of how the pressure on the virus really drives these therapies, monoclonals, to be ones that are highly effective as long as they work, but then with a change in the spike protein, they can all of a sudden lose their efficacy quite effectively. Thank goodness the other arm of our kind of treatment strategy, Paxlovid, which is a protease inhibitor, seems to be much more resistant to these kind of viral changes. And I guess the evolutionary pressure on the virus is such that it's not creating you know, antiviral resistance. So what that means now functionally is we want to keep thinking about, we can make longer term investments in things like Paxlovid, and I think have some confidence that it will continue to work for many, many months and ideally years. But for monoclonals, as we make investments, we know that the efficacy of these things is a bit more precarious and that and more, let's just say, subject to viral evolution. And the last point I'll make on this, Eric, and, and really to all of you, is that it is constantly pushing us to think about expanding our medicine cabinet. What else can we be getting? What other monoclonals, other protease inhibitors, other drugs that could be useful? Because with a rapidly evolving virus, I don't think we ever want to feel too confident that we're always going to have the therapeutics we need to combat this virus. But I think as you frame the problem, we want more tools in our tool chest, which is, I think, critically important, which also speaks to the potential application of these tools are not monomorphic. There may be in a prevention, in an early treatment. So we may need different types of tools for different kinds of patients and for different aspects of COVID-associated illness and prevention. Yeah, absolutely. And this is now where the challenge of biology and medicine meets some of the challenges of policy. And let me explain that a bit. We have right now, we've gone out and we've put a lot of time, effort, resources into making sure we have enough Paxlovid for Americans. And we do it. It's terrific. And again, I think it's working very well and there's very good data on that. But as you said, Lindsay, I mean, we actually want to make sure that we have a potential range of monoclonals, that we have other protease inhibitors and pro-inhibitors as they come online that we're investing in because we may lose one or some of them may be better at prevention. I mean, there was a study, you know, a randomized trial of Paxlovid for preventing infection in people who were exposed and it was non-significant, didn't work. Maybe there's a little hint that it might, but maybe there are other MPRO inhibitors that are better. I don't know. And you're right. And so we need to be investing in those things. The problem has become that is where the policy and the politics come in, where Congress looks at this and says, ah, we have therapies. We're good to go. And we don't need any more resources on this. And now we find ourselves at a point where without additional resources, we can't diversify our toolbox. We have what we have, and that's all we're going to have. And to me, that is a substantial risk. It doesn't allow clinicians to have the range of tools they need to take care of patients. And essentially, we're betting the farm on one main therapy. It's a great treatment, 
but you don't want to, again, against a rapidly evolving virus, you don't want to put all your eggs in one basket on therapeutics. And that's largely what we're doing right now. Ashish, I want to follow up on that because the vaccines came about in part because of the huge incentives being offered by the government to produce them and to produce them very, very rapidly. Those incentives don't exist anymore. And it gets much more difficult for basic scientists and drug developers and vaccine developers to invest a lot, not knowing where the returns come from. It's very likely that antivirals will have a market. And so that's a slightly easier place. But new vaccines, a new generation of vaccines that might, for example, be able to prevent infection rather than just prevent serious illness would take another investment. And given the imperfect uptake of vaccines, it's not clear that a vaccine maker is going to want to spend a lot of money in speculative kinds of work. Is there a way out of that? It's a question I actually probably spend more time thinking about these days than maybe any other, certainly one of the most important questions in front of us. And to kind of broaden that a bit, I mean, I think the vaccines we have right now, the mRNA vaccines and Novavax just got authorized as well. These are terrific, right? They're very, very good. They've saved literally millions of lives across the US. We've all gotten, you know, three, four shots of them. Uh, They're doing a great job, but they have two problems, right? Their durability against infection is low. They are great at preventing serious illness, but even that over time begins to wane, at least some evidence to suggest that it does. And then they need updating in a way that we are going to have, for instance, BA5 specific bivalent vaccines at some point in the fall would have been great if we had it now, but we don't. And we can move as quickly as we want, but it's hard. And again, as you suggested, Eric, these vaccines don't block infection as effectively as we want them. And they don't certainly block transmission. So we do need a whole new generation of vaccines, whether they're pan-sarbicovirus vaccines, whether they are mucosal vaccines. And the challenge is, you know, the history of building mucosal vaccines is not a glorious one. You don't want to have a ton of examples. We have flu mist and that has challenges. But I always remind people the scientific challenges here are not trivial. I mean, because even infections don't give you the kind of mucosal immunity that you want to prevent future infections and transmission, right? So The science here is hard. Now, the good news is we're making tremendous progress on the science. But I think one thing that all your listeners know is that from great science to products in the pharmacy, there's a lot of work. And that's actually a place where the government has a very important role to play in de-risking things, in simplifying things, making clinical trials move faster. Um, So we're really laying out an approach. We're working on that. Again, much like under the previous administration, we had Operation Warp Speed, resources from Congress are going to be a really important part of this to accelerate this. But that's not the only part. I mean, I think there's a lot the administration can do, is doing, and you'll hear more from us in the days and weeks ahead about all of the work we're going to do to try to make sure that these things move as quickly as possible. I want to get back briefly to our two studies. The second looked at how well vaccination protected one group, children, against infection by the Omicron variant. So what did we learn from that study? This study was conducted by a group of investigators in Singapore, a country that has kept excellent health records. They looked nationwide at children aged 5 to 11 who had not been previously infected with SARS-CoV-2 and compared the rate of disease in those who were partially or fully vaccinated to those who hadn't received any vaccine. I won't go into the details of the methodology. It's broadly similar to many other studies we've discussed that moved individuals from unvaccinated to partially vaccinated to fully vaccinated over time and tried to assess risk in those different groups as they shifted. The study extended from mid-January to early April of 2022. 
a time when more than 99% of all sequenced isolates in the country were BA1, the original version of Omicron. There was a remarkable uptake of vaccine, with about two-thirds of the children receiving two vaccine doses and another 12% getting a single dose during the study period. There are several subgroups, but if we just look at the children who received both vaccine doses at least a week beforehand, the effectiveness of the vaccine against infection was about 37%. But that increased to 65% for PCR-confirmed infections and 83% against hospitalization. So once again, we're presented with data that's similar to the data we've seen before. The older data are in adults, but it does appear that in children, vaccines work. They work far better against serious infection hospitalization than they do against infection where they're more modestly effective. But it's important to remember that these vaccines still, as Ashish just alluded to, save lives in this group of children, even at low risk. I would love to underscore a couple of, I think, important takeaways from this study. And again, to go back to how do we use data like this? The answer is we look at studies and data like this very closely to understand kind of what policies we should be advocating for. And as you all know, there's been this sort of mantra out there of somehow kids don't really get sick from COVID. And thankfully, kids who get sick at much lower rates than elderly people do. But we've still seen tens of thousands of children get hospitalized in this pandemic from COVID-19. When you compare COVID to many other childhood illnesses, COVID is actually a substantial burden of disease for children. And the good news, and this study, I think, again, to Eric's earlier point, I mean, Singapore has been doing really fantastic work on teaching us a lot about this pandemic. The good news here is that the efficacy of these vaccines in keeping kids out of the hospital is extraordinary. I mean, if you think back, you know, it's interesting, right? We've all looked at studies, great blockbuster studies that have ended up in the New England Journal. 85% reduction in hospitalizations, like that is a massive finding, right? Like we are not used to those kinds of impacts of drugs and vaccines. These vaccines continue to, I think, really outdo themselves in terms of how effective they are. And what it does is it gives us confidence to continue to advocate for children getting vaccinated as a way to protect them from serious illness. In addition, I think these data also help reassure us about safety in that a large population was vaccinated and no obvious safety signals emerged. And they looked for MISC and there were no signals for the kinds of things we're worried about in children. Of course, one in a million, one in 10 million, one in 100 million events are hard to see. But overall, the efficacy, I agree, is quite reassuring and encouraging. 85% is terrific. Of course, we all look at that and say, how can we do better? And that's the scientific process because we're never satisfied as long as those around us are getting seriously ill. But it is a terrific result compared to the alternative in terms of the number of hospitalizations. I think these real world data from a large population demonstrate very reassuring safety and efficacy that makes us want to push forward even harder. Can I add one more thing on that safety signal? Because obviously that's a question that parents think about all the time. And I, as a parent of three children, and all of them are vaccinated and boosted. That was my number one question as these data started coming together, not just this study, but the data on kids. The safety profile of these vaccines, in my mind, are really extraordinary. Just today, India announced it had given out 2 billion doses of vaccine. Across the world, we are well north of, I can't remember how many billions of doses have been given out to people around the world, but you know, two-thirds of the world of humanity has been vaccinated. And so even those one in a million, one in 10 million events, we see them, they exist, 
but we can start identifying them. I can't think of any therapeutic or vaccine that has been given to more humans in a shorter period of time with the kind of safety profile that these vaccines have. And again, these vaccines, some of them are mRNA, some of them are vector-based, some of them are protein-based. Despite all of those differences, really, to me, the real world kind of experience of the safety of these vaccines is nothing short of extraordinary. Ashish, government's response to the COVID outbreak has been complicated. We have a variety of responses from state and local governments. The federal government has several agencies that play key roles, organizations like the CDC, the FDA. How does your position at the White House fit into all of this? Ah, that's a very good question. What does a COVID coordinator do? Um, <laughs> uh, I've tried explaining this to my children with, with very little success, I will just tell you. But, um, but to, to be serious, if you look across the U.S. government, we have you know, fantastic public health experts at the CDC. I think we would all agree that the FDA is the gold standard when it comes to regulatory agencies that examine and authorize tests and therapeutics and vaccines. The rest of the world really looks at the FDA with envy. It's hard to think of a research program, research shop, a research funding entity more respected, impactful globally than the NIH, right? Both intramural research and the extramural research that they enable. So we have all of this enormous capability. I'm not even talking about and mentioning FEMA and its ability to deal with emergencies, the Department of Defense and it's all of its capabilities. The U.S. government has a lot of capabilities. My job in this role, my team's job, is to make sure all of these efforts across the U.S. government are focused, working together, working with similar purpose, coordinated with a very simple goal, right? which is to manage this pandemic, to keep serious illness down, to make sure our healthcare system continues to work, to keep infections down. And that's a lot of what we do, um, is we work with the scientists, we work with the policy folks, we obviously work with Congress, but we try to make sure that we have policies that are coordinated, that are based on science and evidence, and that all the different facets of government are working together to get those policies implemented. At the end of the day, it's one team, one set of efforts, but in a government as complex as ours, sometimes you really do need that coordinator role to just make sure everything is kind of harmonized and working together. Ashish, we've heard different stories over the course of the epidemic as to how well things work together. All of the agencies that you're talking about, they have lots of responsibilities and COVID is only one of them. And they have people who are busy with all of those responsibilities. How do you actually physically coordinate it? I, I'm asking your kids question here. Like you get up in the morning and you speak to someone from the CDC and the FDA and the NIH, et cetera. So at different agencies, different relationships, as you might imagine. I speak to Dr. Wolensky with a very high degree of frequency because again, there are things that she's working on where she may want to run stuff by and say, here's what we're thinking. And how does this work with the rest of government? Or I might see something and I say, hey, how are you guys tracking it? So that conversation is very fluid. And you know, we talk a lot. And that, as you might imagine, because again, CDC is our lead public health agency. That's obviously natural. The conversations with FDA are a bit more circumspect and they're a bit more at an arm's length. And I think that's very, very important. We saw a kind of a, I would say, a violation of that a little bit in the last administration. And this president, when he came into office, was very, very clear that when it came to regulatory decision making, you know, what drugs are going to get authorized, what vaccines are going to get authorized, those are going to be decisions made by the FDA. And so that information flow actually tends to be a little bit more one sided where they call and let us know what they're going to do. And we usually just say thank you very much for giving us an update. But, you know, it's a combination, Eric, of two sets of things. Often it's the news that happens, new story breaks, new data comes out. 
and then trying to think about what our response is. And then it's really critical that we don't spend all of our time just responding to what's happening and are very proactive in our approach. So I try to make sure that our team has got a set of things that we are trying to accomplish. We talked about this next generation of vaccines, for instance. There's no news breaking that's going to compel us to go do that. But it's incredibly important work to make sure that the government is working towards en enabling a whole new generation of vaccines. And so we try to make sure that that's happening. And again, that's a classic coordination role where lots of conversations with Tony Fauci at the NIAID, because a lot of those researchers are at NIAID, but others are in other parts of NIH, um, conversations with BARDA, conversations with HHS, there's, you know, acronyms galore in federal government, as you guys all know. So the coordination is really around policy, priorities, and making sure that we're all doing this together. And as I said, I try as much as possible not to be just reactive, but to be proactive about what do we want to accomplish in terms of getting Americans prepared for the fall and winter and thinking about the future beyond that as well. Ashish, let me ask you about that sort of difficult relationship with the FDA, because it has an independent regulatory role, which isn't a White House role. But at the same time, and I know there have been criticisms of the previous administration and, and into this administration of planning for what happens when a decision is made, which can look a lot like putting your finger on the scale for that decision. So how do you best avoid that? We know, I mean, we know because everybody knows publicly kind of decision-making timelines, right? So FDA is going to be reviewing this and their VRBAC is X day. And we know typically they'll make a decision the day or two within VRBAC. So if timing stuff, we just generally tend to find out when it's made public. Occasionally, I'll get like a 12-hour preview, like tomorrow morning, FDA is going to announce it's got, this is the day. But that's fine. I think the way I look at this, Eric, is, again, the information flow from FDA is pretty one-sided, and I think appropriately so. So it is rare. I can't remember the last time I picked up the phone and called someone over there. It's much more they're likely to call and say, this is what we're thinking, is how we're doing things. It gives us a clue of where they are. We always plan for alternative scenarios. So even when you think about like an authorization of vaccines, we assume FDA is going to do it, but we have a plan B for if FDA chooses not to, because we've got to have that plan. If we start banking on FDA decisions going in a certain way, I actually think it would create a situation where we would not give FDA the space it needed to make the decisions it wanted. So we plan out a variety of scenarios for every single FDA decision. And most of the times... FDA decides things that we think that's where they're going to go, but there are certainly times when they don't, and that's fine. As you coordinate and try to guide policy, there is that tension between research and care delivery and the need for resources for both. How do you weigh the need for resources and advocating to make sure both arenas are moving forward as quickly as you want them to? Yeah, it's a very good question. And they are so intertwined, right? So for instance, as Paxlovid became much more widely used, we started seeing cases of rebound. And then the question was, how frequent are these rebounds? You could look at the clinical trial, but we want to know in real world, what were we experiencing? Well, that's a research question. And so I always sort of remind myself that like, there's basic research, which is very, very important. And NIH does that and does it very well. Within basic research, there's some more time-sensitive pressing things we've got a great people of NIH who are thinking about that all the time. And again, I, I think about, you know, Tony and NIAID, but again, others, but constantly sort of thinking about, got a new variant, we've got to run some analyses, we've got to figure out what's going on here. So those kinds of things in many ways happen almost automatically. I'm mostly just receiving that information from NIH. But there are times when we start seeing as we're tracking things happening in the community, we start seeing certain types of clinical practices. 
And we will often go back to NIH or other agencies and say, hey, can you get some data on what the experience of this is like at Kaiser or what the experience of this is like through other research networks that we have? And it's a very dynamic process, Lindsay. But as you can imagine, when you're rolling out new therapies, you're rolling out new vaccines, you want to be as data-driven as possible. And you want research to guide policies at those moments. And so critical that we have the money for making sure we have enough vaccines and treatments, but always critical to make sure that there are some resources available to study the impact of these things in the real world so that we actually can course correct when we need to if things are going and playing out differently than we expect. And I think that's been one of the big challenges with this pandemic is we're learning as we go. And I think your point about Paxlovid is as we roll it out in the real world, there are aspects of its use that are unexpected. And how do we understand the significance of that? And how do we communicate that so our community doesn't feel confused? It's interesting, right? Can I build on that a little bit? Because we saw this initially, and Paxlovid is an interesting story. And I tie it to my personal experience coming into this role. I came into this role a little over three months ago. And when I did, we were prescribing maybe four or 5,000 prescriptions of Paxlovid a day. We're now at about 35,000. So eight, ninefold increase in the last three months. And for two reasons, really. I mean, one was when Paxlovid first got authorized back in December of 2021, we really didn't have much. So we almost sort of had this scarcity mindset of, oh my God, we got to save it for the highest of high-risk people. Well, the good news is we've gone out, bought a lot, we have plenty of supply. And so that is no longer the issue. We made it widely available, but you did see as you use more of something for using, you know, 35,000 prescriptions a day, and everybody's tracking it because of the pandemic. So every story becomes a tweet that becomes viral. You started seeing cases of rebound. And it sort of took a life of its own where you almost got this sense that rebound was happening all the time. And it took us a couple of weeks to like actually get data. And we got data from major health systems. And what you find is that when you actually look at the data and the experience, rebound turns out to be you know, not that common. And some studies, maybe 2%, 5%. I haven't seen a single study that shows it's in the double digits. But here's the key point. The goal of Paxlovid was always to keep people out of the hospital, right? to prevent serious illness. And we found no data, no evidence that rebounds are leading to serious illness and people ending up in the hospital. So often it requires, as this stuff kind of plays out in real time, to remind people that the clinical goal of Paxlovid is to prevent serious illness and death. And so rebound is not great, and we wish it didn't happen. It doesn't happen that frequently. But it's still working as its primary goal, and that's been an important part of the messaging that sometimes gets lost in the melee that is social media and people talking about their own rebounds. And, you know, even Dr. Fauci had rebound. I mean, it's just sort of our most famous, you know, uh, ID physician, most famous physician in America. But he's doing great because he took Paxlovid, and he's better. Ashish, two further questions about vaccination. First, as an internist, what message would you give to our physician listeners to help them convince their patients that vaccination is a good idea? And then second, and more broadly, are there more initiatives that government could be taking to help incentivize vaccination? So first, on what to say to my physician colleagues, a couple of things. I mean, first is I remind them that they are among the most trusted voices in America in general, and certainly for their patients, they are their most trusted voices. And so using that voice to do whatever we can to best protect people is critically important. It's actually what we do in clinic and in the hospital every single day. Second is if you look at somebody's risk right now, an older person, let's say, who is not vaccinated, 
given the level of infection we have in the community, which is very high. And my best estimate kind of back of the envelope is that at any given moment, currently maybe two, 3% of America is infected. The risk of an older person who's not adequately vaccinated, so even if they got two shots, but not adequately vaccinated, the risk of that person getting infected and then getting very, very sick is probably higher than almost any other risk that that person faces. So if I saw a person in clinic, as an internist, one of the first questions I would ask myself is, what is the biggest risk that's going to land them in the hospital or potentially kill them over the next few weeks, few months? Yes, of course, I care about what happens five years down the road, but I'm always got to start with the short term. COVID, even at the levels that it is now, remains that risk, especially for older people who are not adequately vaccinated. So I remind people that if our job is risk reduction, is harm reduction, trying to protect people, this has got to be a key part of your message. And of course, because you're such a trusted messenger, using that voice to deliver that message, I think is very, very important. You know, from a government point of view, what should the government be doing here? A couple of thoughts on this. I mean, first is, you know, in the early days of the vaccine rollout, of course, or not early, early days where there was great demand and greater demand than supply. But as that sort of shifted, there were a lot of efforts at things like, you know, incentive programs and lotteries. I think some of those worked a little, but none of them kind of ultimately made a huge difference. I think what makes a difference is two things. One is hearing from people you trust. I really think that vaccine is about vaccine confidence and getting vaccinated is about vaccine confidence. I remind people that back in December of 2020, when the first vaccines were being rolled out, surveys suggested that about 35% of Americans said they'd get vaccinated right away. That number is now among adults, you know, 85, 90% have gotten at least one shot. So confidence builds over time. I think government can continue to give high quality information, make sure that trusted voices in the community are armed with good information. And then last but not least, and I think we can't overstate the value of this, making vaccines super accessible, super easily available really does make a difference. For a lot of people, just the fact that it's so easily accessible has made a difference in them getting vaccinated. And we continue to do that as well. And to me, those are some of the pillars of what the government should be doing. Being a purveyor of good information, working with key trusted voices, and then making sure vaccines are free and widely available, easily accessible. That combination, I think, is what we can do. Ashish, to double down on your point that you made before, most doctors are vaccinated, I suspect, the vast majority. Most pediatricians have vaccinated their kids. Every infectious disease doctor has gotten vaccine and given it to their families. The people who know the most are opting for vaccine, and I think that is an important message. I could not agree more. I mean, I remind people, I think the surveys from last year suggested 96, 97% of physicians had gotten vaccinated. I don't know a single pediatrician who has not vaccinated all of their kids, including kids under five. And I always sort of say to people, and I use my own kids, I have three children, all of them are vaccinated and boosted. And I say, you know, don't just listen to what I have to say, look at what I'm doing. And our actions really do speak louder than words. And it's hopefully a source of confidence for people to be able to see how physicians are acting, what they're doing for their own families as a way of having more confidence in these remarkably safe and effective vaccines. I guess I want to broaden the concept a little bit, because for those of us who cared for COVID patients over the last two years, the hospitals were overrun and severe illness, and many died. And we need to not forget that as we have such tools that prevent this morbidity. But I worry that the anti-vaccine sentiment has contaminated other highly successful vaccines. 
And so measles and mumps, I think, are in the process of resurging and that we need to use our voice to remind our community of how devastating many of these infections have been and how highly successful our vaccines have been. And we shouldn't become complacent either in the short term or the longer term. Lindsay, I could not possibly agree more. I mean, you know, vaccines have been arguably the most remarkable of human inventions in how they have transformed just a whole host of illnesses that we never see, let alone eradicate one of the greatest scourges of humanity, which is smallpox and polio, right? Almost eradicate polio. We're very close, not quite there. But all the other childhood illnesses that it has, I I mean, I just never think about. I never worry about raising my children. I am worried that the anti-vaccine movement, which has always been with us, has used the moments of confusion and complexity of a pandemic to create a bigger wedge into this broader conversation. And those arguments that they're using now against COVID vaccines are also being rolled out against measles vaccines and even polio vaccines. I mean, the idea of polio making a resurgence in my mind would just be ridiculous and, and horrendous. So who's the bulwark against us? Who blocks us? Who stops us? It's trusted voices. And I will say again, certainly when it comes to children, there is no group of people more trusted than pediatricians and family physicians. More broadly, I think physicians and nurses have this incredibly important role to play in our society. And we've got to be very clear about this. And we've got to be unequivocal about this because I think the science and evidence is so clear and unequivocal. Ashish, your role has moved from being an explainer and sometimes a critic of COVID policy to being one of the key people making that policy. So how does it feel to be on the other side? Ah, good question, Steve. Uh, So I think the biggest difference is responsibility. You know, people look to the federal government, to the president, to our team to solve problems, right, and to answer their questions. So that sense of responsibility for getting things right, or explaining things to people in a way that is true to the science and true to the evidence. That is, I think, very, very different than what I felt six months ago. You know, obviously, I felt a sense of responsibility six months ago. I was trying to get things right, but it was different. I didn't have the same accountability. And now I report to the president. I report in many, many ways to the American people. And so that sense of responsibility also, I think, feels very different. I think it also feeds into a sense of not just responsibility, but the accountability that comes with it. Again, in the past, you know, and I always did my best, I would read the evidence, I would make predictions, and sometimes my predictions would become, you know, right, and then I'd be seen as a hero. And sometimes my predictions would be wrong, and nobody would mention it, and it would be fine. That is a very different role than I have now. And in fact, in many ways, one of the things that I've been getting out of is the prediction business, and realizing in the federal government, uh, in any government, the job is to worry less about predicting, and worry much more about planning, and planning across scenarios and trying to think through even some of those less likely but really bad scenarios. What could they be? How do we make sure we're prepared for it? It's just a different job and a different vantage point. It's certainly very humbling. I have my friends on the outside and I watch them with their pronunciations and I realize uh, I was there not that long ago. It's more complicated on the inside. On the inside, you're trying to actually not just give it your best prediction, but really think through all the scenarios and how do you bring people along to prepare and to plan. And that's a different job. But one that obviously, as you might imagine, one feels enormous responsibility of getting right and a hugely humbling experience to have the opportunity to do that and to serve Americans in this way. Thank you very much for joining us today, Ashish. And as always, thank you, Eric, and thank you, Lindsay.